Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. early career in counseling to his thought leadership and the application of AI to fundraising, Scott Rosencrantz has been working to better identify, interpret, understand, and explain the guideposts that lead people from thought to action. Today, in his role as Associate Vice President for DonorSearch Aristotle, which delivers advanced AI capabilities into actionable insights for nonprofits around the country. He is working to present more strategic and predictive donor prospecting approaches. We caught up with Scott in the middle of his work. Scott, thanks so much for being willing to spend some time and talk. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I am too, especially because you have kept your existence <laughs> closely held secret. <laughs> completely intentional. <laughs> Well, I should ask you about that. You spend a lot of your time and energy helping us figure out in the world of, of fundraising and philanthropy what might be motivating other people, but that implies that we have to know something about them. You've been pretty careful about your own privacy, which, of course, I respect, but I'm curious if that's just a part of who you are, if it's something that's informed by your work. Is that uh, basically who, who you've been from the, from the get-go? You know that that's a good question. Uh, yeah, that's probably more um, more of a reflection of of just who I am. You know, I, I prior to my sales role, I really enjoyed being behind a computer and working uh, in the analytics. I didn't like being at the forefront of anything. I'd rather have you know, kind of, I would do the report, I would do the numbers, and someone else could could speak to that on my behalf. I, but it, it's, I've learned to enjoy the limelight a little more and it's just a matter of, uh, only as of recent, I guess, that I've, I've been taking on more, uh, speaking roles, speaking on panels, uh, within the last year. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, uh, the charge on, you know, implementing artificial intelligence in our industry and, and how, big of an arena that is right now and and how much you know people are interested in hearing what what could be done with that type of technology i know that people are really intensely interested in what can be done with it there's also still opportunity for people to understand better what it is and mm -hmm. when you talk about artificial intelligence i'd like to know how you define it especially today good question um so so I guess my own personal definition, not too far from the uh, actual definition, would just be uh, using technology, using um, computers and, and technology to identify patterns and uh, characteristics to be able to do tasks more advanced than humans would be able to do on their own. Um, obviously, that's an ever-changing target. You know what what was identified as artificial intelligence 
30 years ago, even five years ago, becomes more uh, commonplace. And so that's a, a constantly moving target. So it's hard to, to come up with pervasive examples of that, but it, that, that's kind of how I look at the technology. And implicit in that is the definition of intelligence itself, which I know has been broken down and compartmentalized in different ways, as people have described it over the years. Right now, there's a big movement in talking about emotional intelligence, for example. Hmm. I'm wondering, as you think about intelligence and you think about computer-aided intelligence, in effect, if our understanding of intelligence is changing as well. Uh, you know, it, I, I would think so. The, so the interesting thing about, um, you know, the topic of artificial intelligence is often, uh, you know, conscious or empathy. Can I, uh, an AI robot exhibit empathy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about that question, it, it's more, not so much can it exhibit empathy, but it would exhibit something that mirrors empathy. It's always going to be turning uh, subjective uh, information into zeros and ones, and then uh, determining the probability of how would something be received, always, always constantly running through calculation. So it might, it might exhibit something that looks very close to empathy and emotional intelligence, but really it's just based on the calculations and probability that it's, it's constantly running through. And, and again, turning the, the qualifiable quantifiable. These issues about numbers and then concepts like empathy and so forth are things you've been studying for a long time prior to your work in developing these artificial intelligence models for fundraising. I understand that you got your training originally in counseling psychology, is that right? Yes, I uh, for for the longest time, probably when I was uh, just before entering high school, I wanted to be a psychologist. Uh, for a period of time, I wanted to be a child psychologist, and then that developed into wanting to be a family psychologist. Um, I was like talking to people. I liked hearing how people ended up where they are, uh, what their motivations were, what their their storyline was, what what made someone who that person is, right? Um, I also like problem solving in general. And so as I, I loved the education of getting a master's degree in counseling psychology, um, in family psychology specifically, I, I realized that, you know, you, you can't just take one person apart, work on them, and then put them back into the environment where they were and expect everything to change. You know, there's, it's a dynamic system. You have to make changes across the board. And I think when I put the, the you know, my education into practice and was in a, the chair of, a, of acting as a counselor, I realized how challenging it is to work on these subjective problems. Again, when they're going back into the same environment. And I think it, I quickly realized that I was expecting, uh, you know, incorrectly, I was expecting that patients would come in, they would tell me what the problem is, we would work on the solution together, and then the next week they would come in with a different problem because that first problem has been solved. But that's obviously not how uh, human nature works. And so it, it wasn't long before I realized that while I like problem solving, it's more the objective 
and the factual and zeros and ones, that type of problem solving that I, I enjoy much more. I definitely want to return to that later, but in fairness to those who are listening in for the first time learning about you and your work, I do want to see if you can tell us then about the next step in that progression. You went from that kind of work and determined that you wanted to move on and, and look at the other elements that were so appealing to you. And you got that job as a research associate for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Baltimore. It sounds like you dive right into the world that we commonly define as prospect research, advancement services, data analytics. Can you tell me a bit about how you found that job, why you took it, and then what it it gave to you? Sure. Uh, so when I when I realized that I didn't want to be in psychology anymore, I was looking um, still kind of looking in the psych field because that was my experience, but started spread, expanding upon that. I fell back on. One of the things that I really enjoyed during my time uh, in grad school was research, was, again, doing those those psychological studies, uh, you know, coming up with the statistics of how people are likely to behave in certain situations or what types of people exhibit what types of patterns and so on. So I, I found an open position um, as a research associate at the Archdiocese of Baltimore. I went in to interview and they started talking about capital campaigns and fundraising and i had no idea what they were talking about but i just basically yesed my way through that interview uh and here i am i i i started doing research on their capital campaign and all the prospects um eventually kind of put myself out of a a job because i had done the research on so many prospects more than they were anticipating to be done in such a short period that they they kind of moved me up the ranks, um, and as I moved up the ranks during my time there, I took on more responsibilities of looking at the data and doing projections in terms of uh, identifying what how the dollars were going to be uh, coming in in terms of people falling behind on their pledge payments or staying on top of it, so that the archbishop and the the finance team of the archdiocese could start spending the allocations that you know archdiocesan campaigns run over a long extended period because there's so many churches and they they do fundraising uh kind of piecemeal some churches will go and then two years later other churches will start but they need to start spending the dollars that they raised before the entire campaign is done so the projections i was putting together just by excel and, and simple calculation uh, was pretty advanced for them, and they used that to be able to kind of start allocating those funds earlier than they anticipated. How much prediction were you able to do in that kind of environment using those tools? You you came into that at a time when it must have been pretty complicated for archdiocesan fundraising, and I imagine that the outside influences, people's perceptions about the relationship to the church, were in a period of flux. So, how were you able to? start building out some kinds of prediction for what people might do if they were asked differently, engaged differently, et cetera. So it was, it was uh, at that time, it was even more basic than that. Um, it was, while I was at the archdiocese, uh, I started overseeing the gift processing department as well. And so working with them to kind of streamline their efforts on uh, having more proper uh, and accurate pledge recordings, 
I saw some of the data that they're tracking on who's falling behind in their pledges. And so I, I had a sense of, all right, we have all this data for these people, for these pledges that are coming in. We know that some people are three months into a five-year pledge. We know that some people are four years into a five-year pledge. Uh, what, what can we do with this data and how can we use it to determine who's going to fall behind? And at that time, they were, um, the was essentially using a blanket approach to keep lapsed donors from lapsing completely. So keep donors who are falling behind in their payments from just falling off the radar altogether. So they were spending a lot of money on sending out these letters to keep donors engaged. Uh, but by using the, the modeling that I put together, I helped them identify which churches were more, more of a threat to lose dollars to the archdiocese and which donors specifically so that they didn't have to spend you know, thousands of dollars mailing out to tens of thousands of potential lapsed donors. And instead could just focus kind of on the one to you know 3% of those who are going to be the biggest threat to their, hitting their financial targets. So right. not so much on the, the active fundraising at that time, uh, more on the, the pledge collection. But it was that that really sparked my my interest in seeing what could be done with data. Uh, I also read uh, Josh Burkholz's fundraising analytics and and knew that there was more that could be done and and realized that where I was, I didn't really have the I wasn't really in the arena at the Archdiocese to be able to take advantage of that. Um, so I I left there to go to another opportunity and uh, kept pushing the use of analytics. And I, I you know, kind of at that time, I felt like data analytics was still so early on that it covered a broad range of things where, you know, if you showed someone a pie chart or if you did a predictive model, both of those would suffice as data analytics. And when you talk to, to nonprofit organizations, they didn't really know what they needed, but they knew they needed some form of data analytics, not unlike where we are today with AI. I, I did want to ask you about that. Sometimes these things are appealing just because they're new. And mm -hmm. they're also sometimes unappealing because they're new, depending on where you work. But it sounds like you had a sense already about what the potential was, and then you were responding in each of these individual environments to what people's understanding was at that time. But you were clearly working towards something. What what was it that you saw and imagined was possible through the development of these uh, AI tools? You know, it, I think it really clicked again when I read Josh's book, um, mm -hmm. because he talked about the, the purpose of modeling, but then he also walked through the practice of it. And he, he would, um, his book was written on how to use IBM SPSS, which is uh, the, I believe it stands for Statistical Program for Social Sciences. And that was software that I used back in my grad school days to do these psych studies. So it, it kind of brought it full circle, I knew what could be done with psych studies, where you, you know, you look at behavior of a small sample of individuals and use that to predict what all other people are going to do in a given scenario. And so it was a pretty clean cut translation into, all right, if we're working in fundraising and we know what people are doing, we know how people are giving, whether they're giving 
even at that time with the data that we were tracking, it was, you know, credit card, monthly payments, are they using stock or cash? Uh, do they make one gift a year? Do they make six gifts a year? It was, it was pretty basic stuff, but still the, the statistical package could tell you things that you might not be able to figure out on your own just looking at sifting through all that, that data manually. Yeah, I'm wondering, as you looked at that, if you started developing a sense about what you thought was more instructive, because there is a lot of data available on individuals, but it's not always necessarily indicative of what their their true interest is. In fact, I think you said in a, in a, in a seminar once that wealth is just a determining factor of how much someone's going to give, but generosity is a factor that determines whether or not they will give. Are there things that you started to then connect in your mind and in the models that would help us to see what really moved people? Yeah, so it, it's it's really, I, I mean, not to, to make it, uh, not to simplify it, but it's a number of things, right? And it really depends on my motivation to give to a hospital would be completely different than my motivation to give to my church, even though I'm the same individual. Right. So it's at church. I, I was born and raised Catholic. Uh, so Catholic guilt could be a reason. That's not really something that you can determine by the data itself. There's no no survey that I'm filling out ranking my uh, Catholic guilt from one to ten. But by looking at how frequently I am visiting church or, uh, you know, if I if I had children, if they were being baptized at the church that I'm going to, if they're going to school and through Catholic education, you can get a good sense of how important that identification is to me. And by looking at that identification, how much emphasis I put on uh, my my church and my my religious cohort, then you can get a, a indication of how much am I likely to give or how often am I likely to give or how likely am I to give. Um, so it's really just kind of putting yourself in the in the picture of what is this nonprofit, what what does it mean, or how can it mean certain things to the individuals at hand? So like in healthcare, that was after moving from the archdiocese, I I worked at a consulting firm who worked exclusively in healthcare on capital campaigns, and you know obviously quickly introduced to the idea of grateful patients, and that the sometimes the most traumatic things can end up being the most uh will lead to the most grateful experiences because you're at such a low point that what seems like normal care to these physicians they're just doing their job is life-changing to the people who are experiencing it and so it, it's it, it was interesting to be able to look at how that data is tracked again that you know outside of surveys these people aren't really saying this was a grateful experience for me but you get a sense of a pattern based upon their uh clinical history what might indicate they're having a more traumatic experience or get they're going through a harder time and coming out on the other side of it is going to lead to that high level of gratitude that they're going to want to give everything they can even if they don't have the wealth behind it but they're they're affinity for that organization and their inclination to give is so extremely high because of that unique experience. Scott, when you were talking a moment ago, you talked about a couple of things I thought were really fascinating. And one was about this idea of measuring 
some kind of feeling, maybe even a philanthropic impulse. And you, you mentioned that thing about Catholic guilt being on a scale of one to 10. We could talk mm-hmm. about that all, but you, you, you did talk about how something finite, like the frequency of attendance at church can be meaningful. I wanted to ask you about how important it is then that organizations are collecting that kind of finite data. I mean, how much can they get externally? How much do they need to collect? So that, that's uh, another great question. I, you know, and it's it might be uh, uh, a little bit of an overwhelming answer, but obviously, in the in the most simplistic term, is the more the better, right? Um, when I worked at the archdiocese, again, we were we were doing basic uh, analytics just to get a sense of who would give. All we were really doing was taking in the looking at the, the parishioners, seeing what types of gifts they made in the past, getting a sense of you know any wealth indicators that could lead to larger philanthropic support uh, in the future. And that's basically it, right? But even to collect data to do that type of very basic analytics, I can't tell you how many churches I worked with where they were tracking families and uh, parishioner behavior on index cards. And mm-hmm. so, they might have one family that, you know, their their uh, quote unquote data went back 20 or 30 years and you would have Jerry was baptized on, you know, February 2nd, 1982. And then they had the envelope number and they had it was just so, so minimal that you really there's not much you can do there. It's not even just tracking the data, but it's tracking it in a way that can be easily processed. Um, and one thing I love about the data and, and kind of these these models that we're able to build now with technology is that you don't need to you don't need to have a clear idea of what data points are going to be indicative of what behavior you're trying to target, right? The models do that for you, and so that's why it's it's always the more data the better because there's going to be you know if if we gathered 10 experts on uh, philanthropic giving and whether it's in healthcare or it's in religious organizations or higher ed, we could spend days with those 10 experts sitting in front of a whiteboard, coming up with all the data points that we think will be indicators of likelihood of giving and not even come close to what a machine learning model would be able to tell us. So there's, there's that, that, um, I guess the wake of data that people leave behind that are can can give glimpses into different types of behaviors that we wouldn't necessarily be able to think. You know, it, like I was mentioning earlier, I I would think that attending church and having your children baptized or go to that school, uh, those are all key behaviors. But I'm I'm sure that I'm you know only touching the very surface of what really would be indicative of that philanthropic support. It sounds like in a sense an AI becomes a, a good measure of whether or not our assumptions are correct, among other things. It, this issue about church attendance, for example, or religiosity comes up a lot when we're looking at whether or not people give and, and whether or not they will give. It comes up when people are talking about geographic uh, measurements of giving, which states and cities are the most generous. And but it's probably a lot of it's done on whiteboards. It's not done through machine learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's you know that I think that's going to change uh, over the next few years just because the technology is more accessible now. 
right? Um, you know, when I when I started doing predictive modeling, I was using again this software that IBM puts out, and there were limitations in the data that I could track, which worked because there was also limitations on the data that was being collected. So it kind of uh, fit hand in hand. Um, but the more data that you know everyone's seeing now, that data is a commodity. And so being able to collect as much as possible to use, people are going to want to get their hands on disparate data sets from, you know, whether it's religious organization or higher ed. Higher ed's a, a great example as well. There's in one university, you could have seven, seven different databases that are all tracking different experiences and aspects of the students or the alumni. And in most situations, those won't talk together. There'll be marketing, there'll be athletics, there'll be uh, academics, there'll be uh, uh, fundraising, and those are all working independent of each other because they all have different objectives. But if you could wrangle all that data together to get the full experience of how students and alumni are engaging with the organization, I mean, that's a gold mine right there. So yeah. now that technology is able to collect all that data, store all that data, and analyze all that data, you're going to see a, a significant number of advances of people getting away from just a very basic modeling. It, it is just becoming so um, easily accessible. And as you know, for profits have been doing this for decades. So, or sorry, a decade in that it's more uh, consumer facing. Um, and it's just a matter of time for nonprofits to catch up as well. I'm just thinking about all those instances where an organization like a museum, for example, as mm -hmm. people walk through their door, they might just have a donation box or the grocery store for a campaign for a child who has leukemia. And they have those little containers so that people can make a gift or the Salvation Army with its bucket drive. And in each of those instances, there's money collected, but no data collected. Often we worry about the stewardship aspect of that. But what you're what you're opening a window on is how the biggest loss is the loss of data. Right. Right, absolutely, and and that's uh, you know working with a, a lot of or a, a couple of different consulting firms. You see that those social media um, and um, crowdsourcing, those fundraising efforts, while they're good in terms of spreading the the donor base and reaching out to people that you might not be able to reach out to uh, in other circumstances, you don't get the relationship building information that you need. And that's a key thing about philanthropy. You want to build relationships with your donors so that it's a long lasting. So that if they start with a $25 gift, by the time you know you have your your uh, relationship with them, they could be up to a $25,000 gift down the road once you find what it is that really speaks to their interest and their passion. But these these uh, you know boxes and grocery stores that are asking for these gifts or um, those round up, you know, you you make a purchase and round up your cents to the nearest dollar and all that goes to a nonprofit. That's great for the organization, but it's short term. It's transactional. It, you're really missing out on great opportunities to build relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess also, by extension, the ability to model what kinds of people might be most interested in what we do, both among the people who've already given, but also all those other people out there who just haven't heard about us yet. Right. I, Exactly. You know, I have to ask you, though, much of this is predicated on, A, having data and then collecting that data. The church is a great example. We'll, we'll have 
people who made contributions in envelopes. And if we put that into a database, even if it's Excel or a spreadsheet or something, we do have data, but we also have people who just put cash in the plate. You were just talking about that. But we also have another issue, which is there's a, an increasing concern about gathering data. There are, uh, there's a rise of privacy laws like the law in California. Of course, we've all been living through HIPAA for a long time and still not entirely understanding it. I really want to ask you about something you said a moment ago that relates to that. And you said something about at how uh, with hospitals that the most traumatic things can lead to the most grateful experiences. And that's such a brilliant summation about how a person can go through treatment and then be described in fundraising terms as potentially a grateful patient if we treat them right. But I'm wondering, do we actually have the right to obtain the data that would enable us to know that they're likely to be grateful? Uh, that That's a great question. Do we have the right to obtain that data? I mean, from a, from a legal standpoint, legally we do. It, it, it allows for, there are certain data points that you know, we we can't collect. Uh, we can't collect diagnosis. We can't collect outcome, but we can collect information such as what providers were being seen, what departments were being visited, um, frequency of visits, and so on. And and that get, can give again with the benefits of machine learning enough of that data can give a glimpse into what might be going on behind the scenes. We're not trying to find a diagnosis, right? But we're trying to find something that is just out of the ordinary, not just a routine visit. It's something that that's indicative of, again, that it, as much as it sounds you know, bad to say, that traumatic experience because there is a positive outcome to that traumatic experience. You know, and, and actually, interestingly enough, on, on the flip side, there's been you know, uh, uh, countless examples of people who have made philanthropic support to organizations because of a traumatic experience that didn't end well, and they want to make sure that no one else has to experience the same thing that they did, right? So you kind of, it's both sides of that coin, but it's really the, the extremes that lead to that philanthropic support. You know, your standard, you go in, you have your, your yearly checkup, your yearly physical, that's not going to be enough for me to say, all right, this hospital has really made an impact on my well-being let me do something um, out of the norm and, and really show my gratitude for them. It's it's relatively standard. It's only when you're when you're uh, in the throes of something that you know. Again, you're receiving something to you that is extraordinary um, that you want to you want to go above and beyond in expressing that gratitude. It must be difficult to figure out how to put all that data together in the end. And I know that you could do a seminar for the next week telling us how that process works. But if you were to try and and bring it down to the most elemental level about how this process works, how would you describe it? So so we'll start with the most ideal scenario, um, that, that church or that hospital, and you have data from them, and plus you probably have external data. So tell us a bit about gathering that together and then how you put it through this process to start having a better understanding about who those people are and what that might tell you about the future. Sure. Uh, so that for me personally, that's one of the more exciting things. Um, getting to talk to, especially when you're on like a, a data collection hunt, right? And you know you want to collect as much data as possible. Get Starting those conversations of um, 
I guess, opening people's eyes to what the potential is with this type of technology and with machine learning models and how the benefits of the of more data leads to uh, better results and better predictions and so on. So those exploratory conversations of, it's essentially reiterating the same thing over and over again, the, the more data, the better, but eventually it clicks in with the people you're talking to and they're like, oh, you know, I, I was talking to the marketing team the other week and they mentioned that they have this data set. I wonder if we could throw that data point in. Absolutely. You know, there's no sense in turning a data point away. I would often share that with my clients that I'm never going to say no to a data point unless it's something that legally we can't obtain. I'm never going to say, oh, we don't need to worry about that. I don't I don't think the model's going to find anything indicative there. Um, so it's it's first getting a sense of how wide of a net do you want to cast and how wide of a net can you cast and then bringing the right people who have access to those databases bringing them into you know kind of your inner circle to get a sense of all right what is it exactly is tracked there and then also what do the data points mean if i'm looking at the the data export from a certain database while the model may not need to know what certain variables mean or what certain columns mean I need to know what they mean in order to interpret it back to the client, right? Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier uh, how important it is to, to collect the data, uh, track the data, collect it for modeling purposes, but even more so is interpreting that data and making use of the results, right? Um, I've built a number of predictive models that, and these are, these are, back to my earlier days of building static models where it's just kind of a one-time run. It's not making, uh, taking advantage of machine learning, but you build it on essentially a snapshot of data, right? Three to five years worth of historical data, give it to a client. And as we all know, fundraising shops, they have plenty of competing priorities going on. So it's not like they could just stop what they're doing, look at the report I provided and say, all right, let's put these strategies into place to make use of the results you've given. It's usually three, six, nine months before they're able to kind of clear their portfolios out and really look at the report to say, all right, now let's sit down. Me and my team are sitting down and we're going to build strategies on these predictions. The problem is that three, six, nine months down the road when they're doing that, the data is already outdated. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to go back to the drawing board and start from scratch. Really, that's the thing with static models. You need to make use of them almost immediately. And so it, it's... I'm sure it's disheartening from a client side, having to pay for a model and then find out that you're losing accuracy because of time. But it was also disheartening for me. I'm building these models because I want a client to make use of it. I want them to be able to see the benefit of it. And if they're not able to because of a, a time limitation or a technology at that point, the, the static models, it, it, it just felt like a lot of work went unused. And so that's that's what's exciting about machine learning that we don't have that issue anymore, but now you still need to be able to educate the client on how do you put this to use? Because if they're not going to use it, they're not going to, they're, they're not going to see the benefit of it and they're not going to want it anymore. Right. So it's kind of that full cycle of collecting, tracking, interpreting, and then using. And you were talking before about static versus predictive, but what exactly are you predicting? So static versus versus dynamic, rather. Um, and that that was in predicting uh, who's most likely to make a gift. But the, the, the 
you know, I, I keep talking about the benefits of machine learning, uh, but the benefits of dynamic models, which machine learning models are, is if I build a, a static model of a client's donor base to predict who's going to make a gift now based upon the past three to five years worth of history, that the characteristics and the behaviors and the trends of those donors are only um, only valuable to this moment in time, right? Sure. They're not going to be relevant two to three years down the road. And dynamic models take that into account. Machine learning models will always be learning, right? And so it becomes that cycle because if I'm giving clients results from a machine learning model, they're going to take those results. They're going to look at the trends, the characteristics, the behaviors and say, well, why are these people more likely to give? Is it because they met with this provider more often? Is it because they um, they come to this department? If so, then let's make sure that we we do some more marketing, more strategies around those providers and departments, right? And that change on the client side and in that healthcare example, that will then change more donor behavior. So then the models will pick up on differences in donor behavior because of the different marketing strategies or fundraising strategies that the foundation is putting forth as a result of that model. And so it just becomes this, this ever moving and ever evolving cycle that's really just kind of like a, a beautiful model, how it all works together. It's the art and the science, right? And the intent is, and the plan is that five, 10 years from now, the machine learning model looks completely different than it does today because it's gotten such a great uh, understanding of how that, that evolution moves, but also each time it's run, it's getting a better and better, digging deeper and deeper into the data points to determine what leads to those certain characteristics and behaviors. So Scott, can we also use that information then to start doing some prediction about how we might do as, as an organization in the future? Right now, it sounds like the, the prediction that would result from the dynamic models is a portrait, uh, a much more current portrait of the donors we have. What about the donors we might be able to attract in the future? Does it also help with that kind of prediction and uh, and strategy? You know, it 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 really is a matter of when you're when you're trying to think of the how you can use a machine learning model. It's coming up with the questions you want to answer, and then making sure that you have data that answers that question, right? So that's a perfect example as well. You can you can absolutely use machine learning model for that type of question or even internally. Like I, I love working with organizations that, you know, we can't tell our clients to say, hey, use the benefits of machine learning for your own fundraising practice because everyone's using machine learning. If we're not also using machine learning internally to be a better business or to help identify prospective clients or help um identify which clients might be falling a little bit behind. And it really is becomes a, a, you know, infinite space of what answers or what questions can you answer with machine learning? There, there really is no end to it as long as there's the data there and you have the people creative enough to come up with the questions. Yeah, it's interesting because before when you talked about the whiteboards, I was understanding that to mean that you had a bunch of humans sitting in a room influenced by their own experience, but also bias, trying to come up with answers. 
but it sounds like this is a process where maybe we start to ask better questions. Is that right? Right. right. Asking asking the questions, knowing that there's uh, an area for improvement, which all organizations have, nonprofit and for-profit, right? Knowing that there's a, a way to be more streamlined or more efficient, and then mapping that that qualitative question to the quantitative data that can help to map it, right? And it, it's finding the examples of, you know, in a in a CRM, if you want to find uh, what donors predict what donors are going to make gifts of twenty five thousand dollars or more in the next year, you need to have examples of donors that had made gifts of twenty five thousand dollars or more in the last year. And you need examples of donors that have not done that so that a model can see the difference, the commonalities between those that give at twenty five thousand or more the commonalities of those that don't give at 25,000 or more and the unique differences between those two groups. Hmm. And I was talking a moment ago about bias because that's a word that we've discussed offline. And that word has a lot of resonance in different ways. It's not always understood the same ways. Can you talk about bias in fundraising and specifically in these models and maybe how uh, artificial intelligence helps us to address that bias. Right. So, so because the models only only learning from the data it has collected, right? Um, and and that kind of brings up another point where you say if a client says they want to find more individuals to give more dollars, or they want to find more donors, that might be how they're pressing or posing the question but they might have some extra meaning behind it, right? They might, they don't want to just find more donors of here's a hundred thousand people who can give a dollar each that haven't given to you. Cause that's not helpful. What they really mean is they want to find higher level donors or more people who can be elevated to a certain level. So you have to dig and find exactly the question that you're trying to answer. But when it comes to the bias, there's obviously bias in philanthropy. I mean, even at the, the most, most, uh, relevant part of wealth, right? The, the majority of uh, nonprofits have been focusing on, well, who has the capacity to make this gift, right? Um, sorting individuals by that they have the high potential of, or they have the high wealth, they have uh, the means to make a large gift, and that's been the focus. So the model could very well easily learn that those people with the high wealth are most likely to give. Mm -hmm. But from an individualistic standpoint, wealth isn't connected to philanthropy, right? Again, you know, jumping back to the grateful patient, even, even those that have little to no wealth, if they're grateful, they're gonna try to do everything that they can do to show that gratitude, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, I'm not sure I might be kind of circling around the question, but just in the the most relevant bias to me is really the model could very well learn that all right, those who have the highest wealth are those most likely to give just because in the past, those who have the highest wealth are those who were approached to give and asked to give right. <laughs> yeah. 
what we put into this really does make it does influence what comes out of it. But if the process is dynamic, then it gets smarter. We ask better questions. Hopefully that then makes us less apt to project our own experience onto the models and the questions. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's a that's a good point. The more that you put into it, the smarter the model gets. So it's not uh, it's not always an immediate home run, right? right. Although the, the model can look at thousands and tens of thousands of data points that again we might not be able to to think of on our own or find the patterns there on our own manually, it's still the benefits of machine learning are more long term. Uh, because it will continue to learn and continue to improve upon the predictions by seeing, all right, based on who I did predict would give, who actually did make that gift and who didn't. And then learning from those and recalculating and recorrecting and continually trying to get deeper, deeper understanding of, of those behaviors. So it is more of a, it's not so much what you put in now but it's the commitment to continuing to put in and continuing to put the model to work and the results to work, that's where you get the most benefit. It sounds like there's a lot of benefit to all of this, but clearly <laughs> you've seen some limitations as well. So what are the biggest limitations today in terms of what artificial intelligence can do for the nonprofit community? And where do you see those being uh, overcome? Uh, you know, it's it's not so much the limitations of and maybe it's my own personal bias, kind of thinking that uh, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning modeling is uh, the silver bullet, but it's not so much limitations on the technology, it's a limitations on the understanding of the technology, right? Mm. It's it's I think it's a silver bullet in answering the questions, but what we're providing with a machine learning model or all the all the AI models out there, they're tools and tools need to be put to use, right? And to put them to use, you need to understand what you're doing with them. So I, I, I you know, I would use the, the example when talking about wealth screening. Wealth screening is a great tool for identifying those who have wealth, right? But it was never really meant wealth capacity on its own, identifying the, the wealth of individuals. That was never really meant to identify who's going to make a gift. It's just been used in that context because it's 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 available data that you can kind of get that data on most everyone. Right. So it's like using a, a screwdriver to put a nail through a wall. You can do it but you're not using the tool the, the way it's been designed and you're not using the right tool for the right job. So using, building a tool for the right job and then knowing how to use it are key things in, in finding that success. And we, you know, we've had, um, I've been working on, on these types of models for a while now, and I, I can't stress enough how important it is to educate and re-educate and re-educate. Um, you know, even even colleagues that I work with, there's a lot of re-education on what is AI, what isn't AI, and what needs to be done with it to actually see the value in these types of models. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Just from a commercial perspective, it, whether you're out there in the market in a commercial environment or you're here in the nonprofit space and or in the Petri dish of fundraising, our understanding of these terms is really informed by 
listening to you and other people who are working these models. Uh, but I know that in a way, these terms become somewhat, uh, well, what's the, what's the right word? Uh, they're used in the same way that Kleenex is used for tissue paper. Oh, right. that, um, that somebody starts slapping AI on something as if it's organic and but it's you know it hasn't really been investigated for where it comes from. I when when I know that you just said that we need to become educated in the space and continually educated about machine learning and AI in fundraising. So how can we best do that? Not everybody can talk to you like I'm doing right now. How can we best educate ourselves? And how can the organizations working with AI best educate people so we don't get sold stuff, frankly, that isn't AI at all? Right. I, I think it's asking questions, right? Um, asking questions, looking for opportunities for, you know, webinars or podcasts that are talking about the benefits of AI, what AI is and what it isn't, right? Um, I think from the, the nonprofit standpoint, it's, again, you want to make sure that if you're using AI, or if you have the, the task to identify an AI product for you, you to use, you need to be clear in the questions you want that tool to answer, right? It's not going to solve all of your problems unless you're clear about what all of your problems are and you have the data to help answer all of your problems. Um, you need to, to set your expectations on understanding Again, that it, it's it's limited in the data it has, right? So I guess kind of an example is I I would often have clients expecting that upon delivery of a model that that's going to predict donors, predict who's going to make a gift in the future, they were expecting that this model would be able to uncover thousands of people that had never made gifts before, that have high likelihood and high capacity to make a gift. That would be great if it could do that, but if those people don't exist or those reasons for wanting to make a gift don't exist, the model can't find something that isn't there, right? And the model can only, or the technology can only, again, find patterns of behavior. It can't encourage people to make a gift. It can't uh, encourage people to increase their capacity or increase their gratitude. So it, it's the level setting, the expectations, um, and also the, the asking the right questions so that they know the nonprofits know what they're getting into with artificial intelligence and know how that tool is being used to help and help answer their questions. What has been the biggest surprise about all this to you as you've gone through this, this journey of understanding this stuff and applying it to fundraising? Huh. Um, you know, I, I guess it's, I'm in the, in the grand scheme, I guess I'm relatively new in fundraising. This is my 10th year. Um, I've been in working at a nonprofit for the first three or four years of my career. And then the rest has been in consulting. And I, the majority of my consulting has again been in data analytics so i'm i'm in the numbers all the time and surrounded with the potential for for data um so for me the i guess the surprising thing or not surprising thing but the thing i need to remind myself is that's only one part of it 
right? That's the science. There's still the art. And it it is the kind of what we were talking about earlier, taking the data, doing something with it, but then also making sure that's being put to use. Right? Just because it's there, you could have you could have a model that could be 100% accurate in its predictions, 99% accurate in its predictions. But if it's not being put to use, then it might as well not be predicting at all, right? So I think that I guess jumping back to the the previous question the most surprising thing has been how how important it is to educate and re-educate and remind ourselves even you know me and my my colleagues that it is a a long-term tool it's a tool um and that it needs to be it needs to be put to use and it needs to be understood before it can be put to use so that and i was i guess going into this i was thinking that Oh, we're serving a, an ML model. Who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't think that this is the best thing since sliced, sliced bread and understand how to use it? Uh, but there's, there's, that's where the the subjective comes into play, right? And going back to our earlier conversation, I realized I'm I'm more on the objective side than the subjective. Um, strikes me that some of this is uh, sort of like something else. I think you do. Are you a pilot? Uh, no, I I would like to be. It's been a dream of mine for a while now, Jenny. Oh, I thought I saw you uh, in in a picture soloing a plane. <laughs> I I took yeah I took one uh, introductory course and just keep telling myself that one of these days I'm going to get back into into the seat and really get my license. The, the only reason I ask that is because I'm sure that when people started designing planes, first of all, you had the majority of people thinking human beings shouldn't be in the air. It's <laughs> not going to work. But then once the technology was there, just because the tools exist doesn't mean that people know how to use them. And even today with, with experienced pilots in planes that were flying them, they still have to be aware of what's going on outside. They, they're not, they're reliant on both a complex set of instruments, but also the, you know, what is literally out the window. And right, you're in the middle of all that too. You're, you're not really building the plane as you fly it the, you know you 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 guys have been working to build some pretty extraordinary planes but you're flying them in an environment which is constantly changing that must right. require a, a great deal of um of thoughtfulness but also uh nimbleness yeah and and you know we we worked on on uh, not just the pro not just our product and how do we use uh, uh, artificial intelligence for our benefit and for our clients' benefit? It's not just evolving that, but it's uh, evolving the how we tell that story, right? Mm -hmm. And and you know, to the earlier point, we were thinking that we could just say, "Hey, look at this model we built. It's a really incredible model. You should use it, and you would get you know value out of it." To eventually, our our story became more of a what is artificial intelligence in the first place, and why? How does it benefit you in your normal day to day life outside of work? Right, Netflix, Amazon, Alexa, you know, all of it. How does it? How can you see the the correlations from the benefits to how your life is more convenient? How you have these these luxuries of using AI in your normal world to how that relates, how you could use it at work, right? So we had to kind of take that step back, um, you know, and and I was, what you mentioned about 
flying the plane, it, it made me think there's a Volvo commercial out now talking about, I guess, reading people's comments from when the seatbelt was first invented and how everybody was disgusted by it. And it was, uh, uh, you know, against their rights and it was uncomfortable. And how could they do that? And it was going to be make people more dangerous. But now I first thing I do when I get into the car is plug in my seatbelt. Right. Buckle my seatbelt. It, it just becomes so I don't even think about it. And that's it's exciting, only slightly frustrating to think that three, four five years from now, it's going to be a no brainer. Of course, we need to use AI as a nonprofit. Of course, we need to use this technology. Right. And that the whole education piece will have moved past that. But, you know, Five years ago, it was just data analytics. People said, I need data analytics, not really understanding what that was and what that meant, just knowing it was the buzzword of the day. So five years from now, AI won't be the buzzword. It'll be some other version of it, machine learning or deep learning or natural language processing. So it's always going to be kind of this similar to the definition of AI itself. It's always a moving target, right? Um but yeah, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting to see how this just becomes so commonplace in the not too distant future, and knowing that we were you know kind of at the cutting edge of that. Thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate your insights. My pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for the great questions. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by Donor Search, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.